All right, well, do you take your Bible? Let's open together to the book of Mark. We're in chapter 13, part two of a message called I've Told You Everything in Advance. We'll get to some Christmas messages as we move closer to the holiday, but we're going to continue to move through the gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick up the study in Mark 13, verse 14. So go ahead and locate Mark 13, 14. What's the purpose of prophecy? You might ask that question. Some people uh, today are prophecy buffs. It seem like, seems like when you talk to them, they spend a lot of time investing in prophecy. You might ask the question, what is prophecy? Maybe you're new to the Bible and you're not quite sure. Well, prophecy has a twofold meaning. Prophecy is the forth telling of the word of God. So it is, in one sense, just the truth of God's word spoken forth. But prophecy has another sense, and it is predictive in nature. It's one of the things that we said two weeks ago sets the Bible apart from all other so-called religious documents. The Bible predicts history in advance. In, in regard to the prophecies of Jesus Christ alone, these prophecies are predicted some 700 and even 1,000 years before he was born. That's pretty amazing. And Jesus, I mentioned to you as we taught the first part of Mark 13, predicted the fall of Jerusalem some 40 years in advance. When God prophesies an event, he really puts his reputation on the line. If you're interested in the apologetic side of the faith or in evidence and that kind of thing, things that you can test, prophecy certainly falls in that category. Because if a predictive prophecy is made, it's not that difficult to test it. You can see the prophecy, and then did it come to pass? The Bible does this all the time. It's filled with all kinds of prophecies, prophecies about the coming Messiah, but there's also prophecies about nations. And I told you guys, uh, when we look at the dual nature of prophecy, sometimes the majestic nature of prophecy is that there's even multiple fulfillments, what we called a near-far fulfillment, and we specifically looked at that, as I do a little bit of re review from two weeks ago, we, we looked at that in regard to a subject called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is mentioned by eight different Old Testament prophets, and it's mentioned by several New Testament prophets, and even mentioned by Jesus himself. The Day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day as we would count a day, but it is the day when God is going to visit this world in righteousness when he will judge the world, in fact, Acts 17, right, right around 30 and 31 says, God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. He's given evidence of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. God has a day set on his day timer or calendar, if you want to put it that way. He's fixed the day. He set the day. He knows the day. We don't know it, but we'll talk about how much we can know about that day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And he's given evidence of this by raising Jesus from the dead. And Jesus Christ, by the way, according to John chapter 5, is the judge. When you stand before the Lord on that day, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And we're all familiar with parables that he gave when he said, I will say to those on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus is the judge, and it would be a good idea for all people walking the face of the planet to know the judge. Amen? 
Now, the incredible truth about the judge is that the judge came to die for you. The judge took his own judgment. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have what? Everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. As I try to turn my device. You know, it's amazing technology, right? It's supposed to turn. Why is... Oh, okay, there it goes. <laughs> the purpose of prophecy. Evidence that can be tested. Are you taking notes? Uh, prophecy can be tested. You might want to tell your skeptical friend, this is what the Bible makes, uh, one of the things that make, makes the Bible quite unique. God puts his reputation on the line with predictive prophecy. Jesus gave a prophecy. 40 years before Jerusalem fell, he gave it in detail. You can test it. He gave it around 30 to 33 A.D. Jerusalem, all over historical sources outside the Bible, say Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70. You can test the prophecy. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. He predicted armies coming into Jerusalem to destroy it. He predicted an abomination that causes desolation. All of these things are historically verified and came to pass. Another purpose of prophecy is for alertness. Jesus will say, be on the alert. I've told you in advance. That's the title of this message. Prophecy is for preparation, faithfulness. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How do you feel when I say to you, Jesus could come again in your lifetime? How does that strike you? Does that excite you or worry you? Does it cause you to say, I better clean out some of the closets in my house that still have some skeletons that might fall out <laughs> when being opened? I think it was Charles Swindoll who said, the second coming of Jesus Christ tends to smash all of the idols in our lives. He's coming again. This is his promise. And I want to focus on the word promise for a second because it's nice to be able to live in the light of the promise. You see, we are simply passing through. One day Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem and I am living anchored to a promise. Now, a promise is only as good as the person who delivers it. So if someone has been known to be true to their word, that makes me feel better about their promises. And I know this, God is true to his promises. So wherever you are, on the spectrum of faith this morning, wherever you may stand in your own personal journey with the Lord, we are all standing upon a promise. And his promise is for new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So living in the light of that promise is what prophecy is about. God has promised us many things. He's told us we'll be co-heirs with Christ, many wonderful things. There's just a few hurdles we all have. One of them is we got to deal with the flesh, the devil, and this world system. Two is we got to deal with our own mortality. And three is if we happen to be that generation that goes through the great tribulation, we're going to have to deal with some testing. Some people believe that we'll be raptured pre-tribulationally. And if I had a vote, I would be in that camp. I've all told you that before. There's good scholars that have different views on the timing of the rapture and all that kind of stuff, but Jesus gave us a marker. This is where we left off last time in Mark 13, verse 14, when he said these words, Mark 13, 14. He says, but when you see 
the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. And you'll see this both in Mark and Matthew's gospel. It says, let the reader understand. Uh, By the way, you are the reader right now. Whoever was going to read this, they wanted the reader to understand. And that's you right now. You just read it. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Matthew 24, 15, Matthew's parallel text says, when you see the abomination of, of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then it says, let the reader understand. Now for this abomination of desolation, whatever this is, and we, we looked at a couple passages last time. We looked at Daniel eleven thirty one, and we said something like this happened historically. It was carried out by a man who uh, was a Syrian leader, and he did this right around eight, uh, excuse me, 168 B.C. or 167. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he went into the Jewish temple and desecrated the temple. Put what the, bur- the book of 1 Maccabees, not an inspired book, but a historical book, calls the uh, desolating sacrilege, the abomination of desolation. That's the exact words used just as this is still review, from Daniel 11.31. He slaughtered a pig on the altar, unclean to the Jews. He put a statue of Zeus in the holy place, and he uh, desecrated the temple. And this is where we get the celebration. And by the way, this happened about mid-December, uh, 168-167 B.C., and when the Jews finally, through guerrilla warfare, were able to get him out of there and they cleansed the temple, that's where they get the holiday Hanukkah. So that's why that's celebrated, by the way, in December. And one of the things that happened was the oil lasted longer than it should have, and that's uh, one of the ways that they celebrate the holiday. The abomination of desolation, Jesus says, will be standing in the holy place. Now, if this is a future prophecy, What will have to be standing for this to come to pass? A temple. The holy place is the temple. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, I won't go there this morning, verses 1 through 4, Paul said the same thing. There's a symmetry in the teaching. He said there's there's this man of lawlessness who's going to set himself above all objects of worship and want to be worshipped as God. And so some of you have heard that there's been this idea of the Antichrist, and he's the ultimate Antichrist, and he's going to go into a rebuilt Jewish temple and proclaim himself to be God, and this is where this idea comes from. That's why it's quite interesting to see uh, right now there's a great movement to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. There's a temple institute. I believe they've completed all the implements for a modern temple. And they really would like to see that temple go up, but we know that there's tension right now in the Middle East. Turn to the book of Luke for a second. Luke 21, just to your right. Luke 21, look at verse 20. Jesus talked about this this abomination of desolation, some foul thing that's going to happen in the temple. He also mentioned something else that I think has a near-far fulfillment. It's found in Luke 21. Look at verse 20. He says, Luke 21, 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. That's a key word, the abomination of desolation. Then let those who are in Judea, Luke 21, 21, flee to the mountains. 
Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city. So that tells me that another purpose of prophecy is protection. You might want to write that down. Jesus gave a prophecy for people who would heed it in the immediate fulfillment at the fall of Jerusalem. He said, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. By the way, this was literally fulfilled in A.D. 70. As the Roman armies came, they surrounded the city. And Josephus, who's a historian of this time, says that there were people who knew the prophecy and they did flee. The 4th century historian Eusebius records that Christians gave heed to the warning. He says, The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which was called Pella. That's from Eusebius, the 4th century historian. He says, When Jerusalem was about to fall, people remembered the words of the Lord. They were shared by the church, and they did depart, and they got out of there. And I believe that there is a near fulfillment. It did happen historically in AD 70. And I believe there's a far fulfillment when it will happen again, when the Antichrist will go into the temple. Jesus says back to Mark 13, 15, let him who is on the housetop not go down to or enter in to get anything out of his house. Get out. Don't even go back to get your coat. Mark 13, 16, let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Mark 13, 17, Woe to those who are with child, to those who nurse babes in those days, but pray that it may not be in the winter. For those days, this is Mark 13, 19, will be a time of tribulation. That is where we get the famous idea of the tribulation, right there from the words of Jesus, the tribulation. And just so you guys are clear on this word, tribulation is a Greek word called phlipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. The word technically means pressure. It can mean persecution. It can have the idea in the ancient world when they were going to execute someone uh, for a capital offense, they sometimes, this is sad, but this is what they did, they put a large boulder on your chest until you were suffocated. The person would be under flipsis, pressure, until they died. Well, this is the idea of the word, and sometimes the word is translated persecution. Sometimes the word is, is translated tribulation. And people ask the question, who is the tribulation for? Hopefully not for me. <laughs> Amen? When we start thinking about getting real practical, what is tribulation? Well, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Same word. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. By the way, who did he say that to? In this world, you will have tribulation to his own people. Has the church for 2,000 years, two millennia, ever been really spared tribulation? No. Right now in the world, you know the church is going through tribulation, right? If you, if you have the means to go to Voice of the Martyrs or look at websites that tell you what's going on to Christians right now, the church is going through tribulation. Thank God that you live in America. Because we still have the freedom to do what we're doing this morning. We don't have to be underground. We don't have to be in fear of our lives, largely at least. But in other places right now, your brothers and sisters are going through tribulation. 
And I don't want to ruin your day. But I will tell you this. Some of your brothers and sisters are being crucified right now. Beheaded. Going through terrible suffering. So we count our blessings, of course. We try to protect the things that this country was founded on. But we don't live in ignorance to church history. After all, 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death. If anybody was going to be protected from tribulation, it would be them, don't you think? But they died a martyr's death. So we have a lot of blessings to count. But Jesus said there's going to be days of tribulation such as has not occurred, verse 19, since the beginning of the creation. By the way, God does believe that the world was created. God doesn't believe in evolution, just so you know. <laughs> Which God created. Until now and never shall. We got a call on the Bible Answer Show. Concerned mom said, my son, 28 years old, walking away from the faith to which he was, with which he was raised. And he's bringing up arguments like, why do you Christians celebrate a pagan holiday like Christmas? <laughs> when she first called in, I said, why does he care? Why does he care what you do? He's saying he doesn't even believe there's a God course a concerned mom we have concerned parents in this room and grandparents we have prodigals all over the place and my response she did call back the second time was just by the physical creation alone Romans 120 the Bible says that men and women are inexcusable before God check it out read it later Romans 1 verse 20 just by the physical creation alone men and women are without excuse why because the creation cries out for a creator. And his invisible attributes are not kind of seen. They're clearly seen by what has been made. And Jesus says, Jesus is speaking, verse 20, he says, unless, Mark 13, verse 20, the Lord had shortened those days. Literally, the Greek word is amputated them. No life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, that word is the chosen whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now this also could have a near far fulfillment, but look at the sweeping language in verse 20. No life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is going to be a hard time. In Matthew 24, 21, if you just want to write it in your margin, Jesus says, then there will be great megos tribulation. Megos thlipsis is the Greek combination. Great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. One of the arguments for the preterists, I told you those who hold that all of this was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, is they say, well, you, you can really uh, kind of link this to the, the fall of the actual nation, the temple in AD 70. But Jesus uses sweeping language here. He says it's going to be a time of trouble like has never been seen before. And even though about 1 million Jewish people, sadly, some, some say 1.6 million Jews died at the fall of Jerusalem, many more of them died in the Nazi Holocaust. Not 1.6 million, but about 6 million Jews died at the, in the Nazi Holocaust, not to mention Christians and others. And of course, we know that if this does occur again, and that's what Jesus is pointing to. It's going to be a very difficult time, like nothing that has ever been seen before. And that's one of the arguments that it's still future, 
because this was not the most sweeping, terrible time that history has ever seen. In Romans 11.26, it does say that Israel will have an eye-opening experience at this time, that the Lord will cut short the days for the sake of the elect. A big argument among those who are trying to figure out the timing and their position on this is who's the elect? Is the elect Israel? Is the elect the church? Well, we know that in the New Testament, most of the uses for the word elect has to do with the church. It says those days will be shortened for the sake of the elect. I like being the elect when it comes to salvation. Amen? Isn't it cool that God chose you? I don't know how all that works, by the way. I know there's a big mystery on election and free will and predestination. I know all of you wrestle with that. I think Spurgeon may have said it best when he said, I'm glad God chose me before the world was because he cho- if he chose me after I was born, he never would have chose me. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Who are the elect? Well, the church is the elect. Some would argue that Israel is the elect, but here's the deal. It, it means those who are picked out. God loves you, and he chose you. Incredibly, incredibly before the foundation of the world. He chose you to be holy and blameless in his son. I think it's kind of humbling, don't you, that God chose me? That God said, I want Michael to be with me. I think it's pretty awesome. And then, if anyone, verse 21, says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He's there. Jesus says, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show, mark this, signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. And here's the title of our message. But take heed. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. Jesus gives a warning and he says there's going to be false Christs, plural, false prophets, plural. They're going to arise and get this, they're going to show great, signs and wonders. You might want to just write in your Bible there, Revelation 13, because in Revelation 13, we are told that this false prophet and the beast, uh, at least the fa- in regard to the false prophets and the beast, I believe, will have the ability to do false signs and wonders. We go back to the Egyptian situation where the children of Israel are in Egyptian bondage. And the magicians in Pharaoh's court were able to duplicate some of the the miracles that Moses did. Some people say it was sleight of hand. Some people say, no, they actually had some dark powers. And we're going to see this kind of thing happen. I don't know of this kind of thing happening in terms of false signs and wonders being done at the fall of Jerusalem. But we do know in the first century there were people who claimed to have this kind of power. Simon Magus was one of them. People called him the mighty power of God. He, I don't know if he duped people with uh, you know, sleight of hand or if he really had dark power, but I'll tell you this, there are people in the room right now that I could call up here and I could interview and I could say to them, hey, when you were on the other side and messing around with things satanic, was there a real power there? And you would get a yes answer. I've told this story before, but it's worth retelling. One night, many years ago, where there was a bunch of us who were elders at a church in Orange, and we decided that we would just share our testimonies with one another. One of our quiet elders, his name was Brian. He was always one of the last ones to speak, and usually one of the wisest uh, persons. 
You know, you find the people that are last to speak are usually the wisest. But anyway, Brian told this story and he said, uh, me and a friend of mine were in high school. We went out to smoke some pot. This is Brian's story. So we came back to my house and my mom was having a seance in our kitchen. We sat down at the table. There were multiple people at the table. He says, all of a sudden, we began to hear knocking noises on the table. He said, I looked around. Everybody's hands were above the table. Kind of freaked me out. He said, then the light started flashing on and off in the hallway. He said, this was my house, so I know it wasn't wired. I know it wasn't rigged. He said, but then this is what got me. The table lifted up off the floor, moved four feet, and pinned the medium against our kitchen wall. He said, me and my friend got up, ran out of there, went to a local church, and became Christians. <laughs> we were all like, Brian, we never knew. The power on the satanic side, though limited, is still real. And so Jesus says, look, I've told you what to watch for. Watch out for false Christs. Watch out for false prophets who will be able to do signs and wonders. Look, um, signs and wonders are quite an incredible thing. Can you imagine if someone was able to do some things in front of you? How many modern Christians would be duped by someone who could do, perform a sign? A lot of them. And you know why? Because a lot of modern Christians lack discernment and a lot of modern Christians don't even know these Bible passages. And Jesus says, this is what you should watch for. There's going to be people doing things that look miraculous, but they're going to be false. They are false Christ and false prophets. It'll be obvious and plain to see who they are. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, if they say to you, he's in the wilderness, don't go forth. He's in the inner rooms of the secret chambers, don't believe them. For just as lightning, the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. You will not miss his coming. Somebody's not going to have to tell you, hey, Jesus is over on a hill in New York. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. The return of Jesus Christ will be like the most awesome lightning flash you've ever seen in the sky. It will be, here's the idiom, as plain as the nose on your face. You won't miss it. All you have to do is look up. Have you ever seen pictures of those incredible lightning flashes that they capture in a photograph? You're like, wow, they're awe-inspiring. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Because when Jesus comes, he's going to lighten what I believe is going to be a darkened sky. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And I'd like to take you to a few places in the Old Testament. Turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. I'm going to show you how this works because um, this is some what's called often apocryphal language. Isaiah 13. And sometimes what happens is when God is predicting the fall of a nation, he uses these kinds of uh, descriptions. Here's an Old Testament example of the day of the Lord found in Isaiah 13, verse 6. Follow along with me. 6. 
Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Isaiah 13, 6, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. Isaiah 13, 8. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will ride like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Everybody write in your Bible, Indiana Jones. The first movie. <laughs> Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make a mortal man scarcer than pure gold, mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Would you all look back to verse 1 of that same chapter? The oracle concerning, what's your Bible say? Babylon. Sometimes what happens is that the phenomenon of, uh, related to a judgment of God, even with human armies, sometimes painted in this apocryphal language. You look at Isaiah 34, skip over there. Isaiah 34. Here Edom is being addressed. That is the nation that came from Esau. We talked about Esau on Wednesday night. Look at Isaiah 34. You'll notice that the subject is Edom in verse 6. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, 34.6. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. So that's the subject matter. Go back to Isaiah 34.4. It says, And all the host of heaven will wear away, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. We see this in the book of Revelation. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Interesting. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. And then turn to the book of Ezekiel. It's a little further to your right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Go to chapter 32. Here the subject matter is the judgment of Egypt, Ezekiel 32. And this is uh, verses 7 and 8. Ezekiel 32, 7. God says, When I extinguish you, Ezekiel 32, 7, You'll notice if you just check back for a second, 32.2 says it's a lamentation against king of Egypt, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And then if you skip down, just for the sake of time, he says, when I extinguish you, verse 7, Ezekiel 32, or put out your light, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. And will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord, the Lord God. Turn back to the Gospel of Mark. So, our preterist friends, and some of you uh, are familiar with what I'm talking about, but some of you may not be quite up to speed on this. These are the people that believe everything 
that Jesus spoke of in Mark 13, Matthew 24, it was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem. And they say that the language of the moon not giving its light, the sun being darkened, the stars falling is simply uh, metaphoric, apocryphal type language for judgment that comes from human armies. And since human armies came in in AD 70, that's all this is. However, I would beg to differ. Number one, Jesus said, when I appear, it'll be like a lightning flash as far as the east is from the west. He literally said he's coming again. He's not coming just through an army. And by the way, there was a literal darkness in the land of Egypt, you all might recall. It was the ninth plague, and it was a darkness in Egypt that could be felt, and the Egyptians sat in their houses for three days, and nobody even moved. That wasn't metaphorical. That wasn't apocryphal. That was literal. They didn't even go walking around anymore. <laughs> now, it is true that people say, Josephus mentions this, that there were some weird things that happened at the fall of Jerusalem. One record from history says something had appeared in the sky that looked like a sword for a year. I don't know. I don't know how to verify that. Uh, Tacitus mentioned something. I'll, I can share this with you later if you're interested. Josephus mentioned something. One of the stories is that there looked like there were troops running in the sky, verified by two secular historians. I don't know what to make of it. All I can tell you is that um, this is the things that people try to jump to when they say everything was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem. And I'm just going to say, I don't think so. I don't think that that fully explains what Jesus was talking about here. I think Jesus is talking about a, a literal divine visitation like happened on Mount Sinai. God came down on the mountain and it was full of fire. So let's pick it up. Mark 13. Let's look at verse 26. And then they will see who? The Son of Man coming in clouds, that's not rain clouds, that's the glory clouds, with great power and glory. We are looking for the blessed hope, that is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. I don't think some so-called sign in 70 AD that there appeared to be some people running around in the sky is quite going to do it. Would you agree? I think Jesus is coming again and he's going to show his glory and if the sky is dark, and think about this. If God, how many of you remember the commercial where you could just clap and your lights would go off? <laughs> clap on, clap off. Did it ever really work? I don't know. I didn't even try it. Par partially? If you got the clap exactly right? <laughs> well, here's what I think is going to happen, folks. God's going to have the day on his calendar and go, <laughs> lights off. He said, how's he going to do that? I don't know, he made them. <laughs> I think he can do it. And Jesus Christ is going to appear, and the Bible tells us, and all the angels with him. Do you know scholars believe there's probably billions of angels? Talk about a light show. He's coming when the sun no longer gives its light, the moon is dark, and the stars don't shine, and the only thing that's going to shine that day is the Lord and his glory. And if you're one of his people, you're going to say, come, Lord Jesus, raise up your head. Your redemption draws near. Praise God. Hallelujah. And other people are going to be going, uh-oh. 
Sunday school stories true? Here he comes. And the Bible tells us that people will be trying to hide in the rocks and in the caves. And some people will be saying, please let a rock fall on me and hide me from the face of the Lamb. But the day of his wrath is coming. Who is able to stand? Do you know who's going to stand in that day? Blameless, unaccusable before the Father. You and me. If we're here on that day, whoever's here who knows the Lord, he's able to make us stand. But he's coming. He's promised this coming. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Revelation 1.7. And so as we move down, it says, Then Jesus 27 will, Jesus speaks, Then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end end of heaven now the bible tells us that the angels are coming with the lord and i know this sounds fantastic to a lot of you but this is what the bible teaches that god does invade history and here he comes and he's going to send forth his angels and his angels appear to be involved in the rapture when they gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other end of heaven this is a sweeping statement now, the people who argue that this was all fulfilled in the first century say the angels here are messengers of the gospel who go out to the four winds of the earth and preach the gospel in the intervening time between A.D. 70 and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So they say the angels are simply messengers going to preach salvation. I think that's a bit of a stretch, don't you? The angels are going to gather together his elect from the four winds, there's going to be a great trumpet, Matthew 24, 31. And his angels, or the angels, are going to gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other, Matthew 24, 31. They're going to do an old roundup. And I believe that this is your rapture, folks. Some people will disagree with me. That's okay. We can agree to disagree on non-essential doctrine. But I believe what you have that the second coming of Jesus Christ is a rescue of his elect and a judgment of the unrighteous world. All at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that time will be extended by the judgments of God. It's not a literal 24-hour day, but it is his day. And to me, this fits best with a lot of the other teaching that we see in the Bible. It appears that the church will be going through a hard time, a difficult time, the signs will come. The ultimate sign is going to be the cosmic sign, the sixth seal in the book of Revelation, the darkening of the natural lights. Here he comes to rescue his people and to judge the world. Two illustrations Jesus gave about this day. Noah and the flood. He says the day that Noah was closed into the ark, the eight people were secured, the flood came and took them all away. Second illustration is Lot. Genesis 19, the angels say, we can't destroy this place until you're out of here. And so Lot is literally dragged out of Sodom by who? Two angels. Isn't it interesting? I think there's a connection there. It'll be just like the days of Lot. 
They said, come on, get out of here. And we all know we don't want to be like Lot's wife, right? Because she looked back. And you know, in this part of the world, there's all kinds of salt formations by the Dead Sea where this occurred. And one is called Lot's wife. You can see, Google it. You can find everything with Google now. You guys know that, right? Google Lot's wife in this area, and you will see there's a formation that very much looks like a woman who's going, <laughs> kind of, sort of, anyway. The salt there is kind of the sulfur and, and the stuff that's found around that area. Mineral content in the sea, the Dead Sea, which is not actually dead, it's called the Sea of Salt, allows you to float in there without the little uh, flotation devices. You can literally walk in there, lay down, and float there. You just can't stay in there too long or it'll suck the life out of you. <laughs> now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender, 28, and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus pointed out that he was speaking about the fig tree and all the trees in Luke 21, 29. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now the big debate, if you run in these circles of prophecy and eschatology, is who's the generation? And what's the fig tree? Well, people used to argue that the fig tree was Israel. Israel became a nation in 1948. A biblical generation is 40 years. So 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. Literal book that was written in the time. <clears throat> Got that one wrong. Well, maybe it's 1967 because they recaptured Jerusalem in 1967. 40 years from 67 is 2007. <clears throat> wrong. Thanks for playing. So, <laughs> that's from John the Beloved, inspired by John the Beloved on the back row. We have to be careful. I think the fig tree is simply a parable. It's a picture. And when Jesus was speaking in the springtime, this Passover week, he literally was speaking of something that was a phenomenon happening right at the moment he was speaking. For the leaves of fig trees would grow tender in the spring and then bear fruit in the summer. He was giving an illustration that was right in front of them. Whatever generation this is, and of course it was the generation to the fall of Jerusalem, it was the apostles' generation, but this generation, I think, I think just simply means the people who see all of these signs are going to see the end. Skip down to verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. That's brought some confusion to people. I think just in his humanity, he didn't know. Obviously, as God, he does know. But the Father alone. By the way, this is also a very Jewish expression. Uh, at Jewish weddings, the only one that knew the time of the wedding was the dad of the groom. Only him. He could decide. Now, men in modern weddings have lost all their power. Can I get an amen? You ask men who are involved in weddings, what is happening, what's the colors, what's the date, they know nothing. I don't know. They have deferred, backed away. 
But in Jewish times, the father actually controlled the moment of the wedding and he would send a herald out and they had to be dressed and ready to go. And the herald would say, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming, get ready. And he would announce the coming. Maybe even a shofar would be blown. That's the same kind of language that Jesus says will happen when he comes. Take heed, he says, 33, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. I think we're going to have a good idea of the season, but not know the exact day or hour. It is like a man, as we look at the final few verses, it's like a man away on a journey, 34, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. He says, therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come and suddenly, suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Can I ask you, what task has he assigned you until he comes? Well, some of you may be thinking, well, you just said that Jesus may not come back in our lifetime. Well, does that mean that you're going to skate by? What's your task? Jesus said, occupy until I come. You have one life, my friend. One life to live. One day, you're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say to you, Hopefully, this is what we all want to hear, right? What do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Those are words that I'm living for. I do what I do now, not just to hear that. It's all right. I also think of how much he loved me. He was willing to give his life for me. That motivates my service. It was mentioned in the prayer room as you go down our uh, e-bulletin. There are needs in this ministry. We need volunteers in this ministry, volunteers in that ministry, volunteers in this ministry. Somebody said in the prayer room, wow, really? So churches today have to beg for volunteers to fulfill ministries inside the church. Basic stuff. Like putting on a blazer and saying, welcome to living truth. Or teaching a little kid a Sunday school lesson. So you may have to stay here in extra service to serve in Sunday school so a little kid can understand things about the Lord. Amen? Look, you have one shot at this, folks. I have one shot at it. And so I want to be busy about his business until he comes. One day, uh, a panel of us pastors were talking about the second coming on the radio, and uh, we were talking about the study of the end times and eschatology, and one of the pastors said, what about your personal eschatology? You're like, what? He said, yeah, you're going to die. Uh, you know, we can, we can preach the second coming, and we should, and we should tell people, be ready, Jesus is coming. But by the way, maybe the more urgent need is, James says, you don't even know if you have tomorrow. Amen? There's a personal eschatology that we all have to deal with. 
And I'll tell you what, week in and week out in the ministry, we deal with it. We've had some losses in this congregation. And when people come to memorial services and they sit like you guys are sitting right now, we just did one last week for a church member that lost her husband suddenly. All of a sudden, things are a little different. And I have a chance to talk to people just like this and I just say to them, um, I don't mean to be coy or morbid, but you know the statistics on death are quite impressive. (laughs) One out of every one of you is going to die. That shouldn't shock anybody, but usually it's because we're kind of checked out of that reality. What do you mean? Yeah, you too. No, not yet. Amen, Brother Paul. We heard the story of the little boy in church. The pastor said, how many of you want to go to heaven? Everybody raised their hand except the little boy. He saw the little boy in the foyer. He said, why didn't you raise your hand? He said, I thought you were taking people now. (laughs) I want to stick around a little bit longer. See, he's either going to come for us or we're going to go to be with him. Either way, I'm going to go to be with the Lord. He's prepared a place for me. I take great solace in that. That's how much he loves us. But I also want to redeem my life for his kingdom purposes. Amen? Amen. Father God, thank you for the folks that were here today. Thank you for the Carl family and Winston and Hunter. We just pray your blessings upon that family for Jason and April, that you'll just bless them. Thank you for all the precious saints that have gathered on this day to worship you. And thank you for the uh, visitors today, Lord, that have come, those who may not be Christians yet, but they, they've been feeling a little nudge to come closer and to hear what you have to say to them. And I pray that you'd speak to every heart today, Lord. Speak to my heart. I want to have a prepared heart. And so, Lord, um, every day that we live, we need your grace. We, we make mistakes. Sometimes we're lazy about the things of God. But in the end, Lord, we want to be a people that occupies until you come. There's so many souls to be won, so many people to be told the good news of the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And we're watching more and more people open their hearts to that hope. And I just want to pray for you right now. If you're that person who needs to open their heart for the first time to that hope. And it is a blessed hope. It's something like this. And I would ask you, just consider the words that have been spoken. Consider the words of Jesus. And the best way that you could get ready is you got to know him. It's something like this. If you want to rededicate your life, you're not sure, God forbid, if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. It's something like this. Pray it out loud. Don't let anything stop you. Jesus saved me. Thank you that you came to this world and died on that cross for me. Pray it if it's you. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please change my heart. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit. I repent of my sin and I turn to you. In Jesus' name. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, for this precious congregation that has the Christmas season in front of us, Lord, we just all want to keep our focus where it belongs. So would you bless, would you pour out your spirit on this group? Would you minister to every need that's here, Lord? Would you give a new Christmas light in light of your advent, in light of your second coming? 
May you minister. May your living waters wash over this group. And we pray that you'd be glorified and we'd be busy about your business until you come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.